So last week we talked politics. And you came back. Uh, We talked politics last week. Uh, This week, just in keeping with this, uh, we're going to talk religion. Politics and religion. Better yet, we're going to talk about being a Christian. And, you know, I was probably a kid when I first heard, it's a relationship, not a religion. It's a relationship, not a religion. I've repeated that many times over the year at the bridge, over the years here at the bridge. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. And yet in the New Testament, the word is used four times, religion speaking of our faith. I want you to know before we even open the scriptures this morning, the word in the Greek is threskos. Threskos, used four times. The word literally translated is fear, trembling, worship. Fearful, trembling, worship. Threskos. That's the biblical definition for religion. And in that case, yes, this is a religion. Because we come before the Lord in fear and in trembling. Not afraid. See, I'm no longer afraid because I'm covered by the blood of Christ. I can come boldly before the throne of grace in time of need to seek His help. But but I come in a holy fear. I come trembling, recognizing who God truly is. And I want to start with that because as we go through the study this morning and think through the religious aspects of our Christianity, what it truly means to be a Christian, I'd like us to have inserted into our spirits a little bit of holy fear. We're going to talk about two specific things, just two points this morning, pretty easy. should be easy to track. I don't expect anyone to come after me afterwards this morning and say, hey Rick, what was point number two? (laughs) You should be able to get these. Two points. But they should be led by a holy fear. By a trembling as we come to the Lord. And I don't think either of these bring about enough trembling in our lives when we consider who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19, tells us this. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks and also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Skip ahead to chapter 13, verse 1. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Oh, Father, this is your word. This is your word, Lord. Help us to hear true to your word. Help the words that I speak, Father, be true to your word. What we're going to deal with, you know, you put on my heart some topics, a a couple of things that that I believe need need dealing with. A couple of things to be reminded of in our Christian walk and, and perhaps to be introduced to those who either don't know Christ or are brand new in faith. But of these two things, Father, of these two concerns, issues, I pray, Lord, you will keep us in your word and keep me connected to the teaching that is before us 
in Acts 11 and in Acts 13. And reveal to us, Lord Jesus, the intentions of Your heart. Through the voice of Your Spirit in our hearts, teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It happened in Antioch. For the first time, the followers of Jesus, as we noted down in verse 26, were called Christianos. The Christianos. That Greek word we have transliterated to be Christian, meaning Christ-like ones, or literally little Christs. Little Christ. Oh, you're a little Christ. You're a Christian. For the first time in Antioch, the church set its sights on the Gentile world. For the first time, the great commission of Jesus truly began to be implemented as He had said in Matthew 28 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the ethnos, all the ethnicities, all the nations. And so what the writer, what Luke tells us here is the harrowing persecution that began in Jerusalem with the stoning of Stephen. The harrowing persecution tilled the church. Like good manure on fertile ground. And I've told you before, the church is like manure, Christians are like manure. And we are. Spread us out and we fertilize well, clump us together and we stink. (laughs) And as Jesus now outlines for us in the book of Acts, he outlines back in Acts chapter 1, three acts, three acts in the book of Acts. Act 1 is in Jerusalem, the first seven chapters. Act 2 is in Judea and Samaria, chapter 8 through mostly chapter 12, but then Act 3, to the remotest part of the earth, Jesus said, that's what you're going to do, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. Well, that begins actually in chapter 11, the last half, and really gets rolling in chapters 13 through 28, Act 3, part 3 of the book of Acts. As the Apostle Paul would later write in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it happened in Antioch. Now you might say, if you've been studying along and following these things, you might say, well, what about Philip and the Ethiopian? He obviously was a Gentile. The gospel went to a Gentile. That was back in chapter 8. What about Peter and Cornelius? Cornelius and his cohort were obviously Gentiles in Caesarea. That happened in Acts chapter 10. What about those places? Listen, in both cases, whether it be Philip or Peter, both were invited by a Gentile. Both were sent by the Spirit. It's not until verse Well, really, verse 20 of Acts chapter 11, that suddenly the church, the church begins to make a concerted effort to take the gospel to Gentiles. There in Antioch, it happened in Antioch, to the remotest part of the earth. Now let's get situated quickly here. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 tells us that they made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So three locations are listed. Phoenicia. If you were to start in Jerusalem and just head north, perhaps go out to the coast and continue on up north, once you got to what we call Lebanon today, you would find yourself in Phoenicia. Phoenicia was a coastal region. It included Tyre and Sidon. And again, what is Lebanon today? Phoenicia. Cyprus. The other location to which they were sent or to which they went in this persecution is that great island northwest of Israel out in the Mediterranean Sea. So some went out to Cyprus, some went up to Phoenicia, and others continued all the way up 262 miles. Oh, I'm sorry, no. Cyprus is 262 miles out northwest of Jerusalem. 300 miles due north of Jerusalem is Antioch. In Syria, at least at that time, it was called Syrian Antioch. Well, today it's in Turkey. It's uh, next to Syria. In fact, it's right on the southern border of Turkey. What the what the Mediterranean Sea does is it makes a little. It comes to a point down on that western coast of Israel. It heads all the way up past. Uh, Lebanon and then Syria and it makes a little hook there's kind of like an inlet up toward the top and Antioch is on the east side of that inlet 
Tarsus would be on the west side of that inlet, about a hundred mile walk around the inlet and down to come over to Tarsus. But Antioch is there straight north, about 300 miles again, north of Jerusalem. Antioch sat on the Orontes River, the southern border of Turkey again. It's still there today. In fact, it's called Antakya. Antakya, Turkey is the location of Antioch. Today there's a population of about 3,500 people, so a small town there in Antakya. But Antioch, in the day of the first century, was half a million people. It was a huge city. In fact, it was the third greatest city in the entire Roman Empire. Rome was the greatest, Alexandria second greatest, and Antioch, Syrian Antioch, was the third. And it had two reputations. First of all, it was known for its cultural sophistication. It was a place of of great education, of great learning. Again, like an Alexandria or a Rome. A lot of college professors would be there in Antioch. A lot of training and education took place in Antioch. Very cultural people, but hand in hand with its cultural sophistication was its carnal indulgence. And I find that fascinating because it seems that oftentimes those two go together. Cultural sophistication and carnal indulgence. You wouldn't think it would be that way. You would think the more learned, the more educated, the more erudite a person becomes, the more they would realize how foolish the flesh really is. Not so. It's just the opposite. The more culturally sophisticated people tend to become the more they tend to rely on the flesh, believe in the flesh, and thus open the door to carnal indulgence. I think we need to be sophisticated. We need to be intelligent. And so the elite, the educated, the erudite, tend to be those who engage in the things of the flesh. Let me just prove it to you biblically. Romans 8 verse 5. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are on the flesh cannot please God. And so here we are in Antioch, this culturally sophisticated, carnally indulgent culture, this city. And that's the place God chooses to be the launch site of the gospel to the Gentiles. That's the location God says, here, this is where it's going to happen. The cornerstone, truly, of Christianity in the first two centuries, and it happened in Antioch. Verse 26 of chapter 11 says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. It was meant for an insult. We talked about this on Wednesday night. Christianos was an insult from the culture to these These followers, these believers in Jesus. Meant for an insult, but it became an insignia of the early church. Peter later wrote, 1 Peter 4.16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And Saul, Paul, whose ministry really took off in, went out from Antioch, as we see at the beginning of chapter 13, he wrote the following to the church in Rome. He said, Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And that's what Christianos means. So, Saul, Paul starts off here in Antioch. Saul calls Christianity, defines a Christian as someone who is conformed to the image of the Son. That means we look like Jesus, Christianos. Little Christ. Those who are Christ-like. And there are two Christ-like attitudes that emerge here in Antioch. Two Christ-like attitudes. I think if I were just to say these and, and, and we were to close our Bibles and leave you and say, Oh yeah, yeah, that, I, we get that. Yeah, that's, that's being Christian. I understand that. This is where I want to inject a little fear and trembling. This is where I think we need to truly consider where we stand. We talked last week about politics. That's easy. Consider where you stand on these issues. 
Think about where you really stand as a Christian in the voting box. As a Christian who is considering candidates. That's not hard to do. It's very black and white. Very cut and dry. But when it comes to our religion, our fear, our trembling, our worship of the Lord, these are two issues that I think are far more important even than where we might stand politically. Two attitudes that I guess are truly anything but religious. At least as far as the world views religion. Now you you might say, okay, but yeah, Christianity, it's a world religion, right? It depends on how you define it. Now if you define it, if you define religion as the Bible does, as fear and trembling and worship of God, absolutely. We are a religion, in fact, we're the only one that truly fears and trembles and worships before Adonai, the Lord God. James chapter 1 verse 27, James describes it for us. James writes, Pure and undefiled religion, threskos, in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And that's what it means to be Christ-like. What do you mean? To visit widows and orphans in their distress. Now, I don't want to take anything away from visiting widows and orphans because specifically that's what James said. But understand this. You cannot visit widows and orphans in their distress without a relationship. Our faith is lived out in our relationships with each other. To the least of these, to the widows, to the orphans, and I would add to the rest of these, our faith, our religion, our pure undefiled religion, is lived out in our relationships. And secondly, he says, and to keep oneself unstained by the world That is our righteousness. So there are your two points for the morning. Relationship and righteousness. Relationship and righteousness. These are the two issues. And and for whatever reason, God has these heavy on my heart this week. For the first attitude, we need to draw back a bit. Look at verse 2 of chapter 11. And let's get a running start and see what was really taking place here. We're told that Peter came up to Jerusalem... And those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now we looked at this last week, but listen, what was the real problem? What did they truly take issue with? The complaint was not against baptizing Gentiles. The complaint was against eating with Gentiles. Oh, you can baptize them. Fine, go ahead, do that, no big deal. Just don't eat with them. They can be part of the church, but I'm not hanging out with them. They can be in the fellowship as long as they sit on the other side of the sanctuary and not near me. Ever play that game? They didn't even see it as a faith issue, that is, Gentiles believing. They saw it as a social issue, that is, fellowshipping with them. Think about this. I mean, it shocked me. We we blew right by this as we were studying Acts chapter 11. I didn't even see it at first. How dare you eat with those Gentiles? They received the Holy Spirit and they were baptized. That's the issue. But they were like, oh, that's, you know, whatever there. Go to church with them. Just don't socialize with them. And it was and it is an attitude that reeks of hardcore, stone-cold, hypocritical religion. Religion as the world defines it. If I can't accept a brother in fellowship how dare I pretend to accept them in faith oh yeah we're brothers in Christ but I don't talk to them oh yeah she's my sister in the Lord but I won't have anything to do with her really? really? I think that's defiling religion baptize away just don't eat with them is there anyone in our fellowship you personally would refuse to take a meal with? Now, I don't think there is. But I'll tell you, it happens in religious circles all the time. At least impure, defiled religious circles. And look how deeply embedded this legalistic attitude was among the early disciples, at least among some of them, down in verse 17. Therefore, Peter is saying, if God gave to them the same gift He gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? 
Now Peter's on the learning curve, as we've talked about. He's, he's getting it. He's starting to understand. Well, God accepted them. So, I guess I need to as well. Verse 18, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God. Well, praise the Lord. Saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And you think, that's it. They got it. They're good to go. Read the next verse, verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. They went to these three regions, these three city-states, these three areas that had large Jewish populations, all three of them. And they took the gospel to the Jews. Do you get the hypocrisy? Oh, Jesus, we we, we took the gospel in Jerusalem and and out of Judea and Samaria, we got the Samaritans too. And then we went to the remotest part of the earth to Jews only. We headed out there to our fellow Jews. And that's just how some saw it. That the whole Jesus thing was a Jewish thing. And truly was not going to be for the whole world. Listen, in God's view, sharing Christ demands sharing life. Faith demands fellowship. Pure, undefiled religion demands relationship one to another. So two attitudes that emerge in Antioch, and attitude number one is the right hand of fellowship. The right hand of fellowship. Look at verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. By the way, Cyrene is North Africa. Okay. So there were some outside of the Bible belt of Judea and Jerusalem who now began to speak to Gentiles also. They, they got some bright idea that perhaps these guys want to hear about Jesus too. And they start doing so, verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So the intentions of God are absolutely unmistakable. Jesus extends the right hand of fellowship through His church. And according to Luke, the response was huge. Verse 22. So news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Now that was a wise move. Good for you, leadership in Jerusalem. Because Acts 4.36 tells us that Barnabas was from Cyprus. So Barnabas was born and raised on the island of Cyprus. He, He knew Greek culture. He probably would have been among the Hellenistic Jews or the Hellenistic Christians that he was cultured in in Greek learning. He got it. So that's where he was from. Yeah, sin, Barnabas. But there's an even better reason than his cultural background. And that is that Barnabas was characteristically an encourager. You know, that son of encouragement. Send the son of encouragement off to Antioch. And so they did. And that's just what Barney did. He went encouraging everyone. Verse 23. When he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Note that, that's what a good man does, a good woman. Someone full of the Holy Spirit is someone who makes no distinctions among God's people, but encourages them all. Someone who who looks across the entire fellowship of believers, who looks across the entire church and says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if He is your Lord and Savior, I am here to encourage you, and it doesn't matter who you are. And it doesn't matter what you look like. And it doesn't matter what you've done. An encourager is a good man full of the Holy Spirit, a good woman full of the Holy Spirit, and does not make distinctions in terms of fellowship. Do we... Are there those you resonate with and those you reject? Those you love to hang out with and those that you just prefer not to and you're thankful they go to second service? (laughs) When we see, 
with the eyes of Jesus. And I often pray this, Lord, give me your eyes to see the way you see. Help me see people the way you see people. I especially pray that when I'm ticked off with someone. Lord, help me see them the way you see them. And help them see me the way you see me. But when we see who Jesus has accepted, it opens our minds and changes our hearts toward them. Just that realization. Ah, she is a sister. Oh, he is a brother. Yeah, the Lord does love them. Man, that makes me look at them very differently. And when I'm contentiously thinking about how they've offended me, this is a brother in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2 says, With all humility and with gentleness, with patience, show tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so we see this Antiochian evangelism. Okay, they're preaching Jesus, and it was absolutely on fire. And they're going out to, to Gentiles as well as Jews, and they're making no distinctions. And the gospel is exploding there in Antioch. And now that evangelism's underway, Barnabas realizes some discipleship needs to take place desperately. We gotta get these people trained. And so he begins to think, and I'm extrapolating just a bit here, but Barnabas begins to think, who can I get to help me teach these Gentiles? Who would, who would love this? Who would do a great job? Who knows the word? Verse 25. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year... They met with the church and taught considerable numbers and the disciples were first called Christians there in Antioch. See what Barnabas does? I love this. He goes and gets Saul. Saul's a hundred miles away. He doesn't go back down to Jerusalem and send for Peter or John or one of the apostles. He says, Saul, he's my man. Barnabas makes a quick trip up around that that little horn of the Mediterranean, down to Tarsus, gets Saul and brings him back. Now Saul, we talked about Wednesday night, had been in in, in Tarsus at this point somewhere between 7 to 10 years. 7 to 10 years since the last time we saw him, and that was only back in chapter 9. Right, he had the experience of Jesus, and he taught in Damascus, and then he went away and was trained by the Lord. Then he comes back to Damascus and and some people get upset with him so they lower him over the side of the wall in a basket and he makes his way to Jerusalem and he teaches in Jerusalem for a bit and he's on fire and he's accepted there in Jerusalem but then things get a little hot under the collar there, a little difficult and he's kicked out of Jerusalem, has to flee for his life from Jerusalem, ends up back in Tarsus where he sits for seven years. What's he doing? Evangelizing? Starting a church in Tarsus? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. In fact, the Bible tells us they were first called Christians in Antioch. Luke begins to really hone in on, focus in on what was happening in Antioch, not in Tarsus. And so you got to wonder, I get this picture of Saul, whose life was radically altered by the Lord, and over a, a, a period of three or four years, some remarkable experience as a follower of Jesus and then it all falls apart and he's back in Tarsus, back home not even accepted, I'm I'm sure, in his childhood home, because he's no longer just a Jew, now he's one of those followers of the way and he's living in Antioch perhaps he's making tents but Barnabas remembers Saul Barnabas goes and gets Saul, Barnabas brings him back And I believe that that would have a deep impact on Saul. In fact, I think Saul carries this far into his ministry, this idea of relationship. That when everybody else forgot about him, gave up on him, Barnabas didn't. Barnabas goes and gets him. Barnabas extends to Saul the right hand of fellowship and draws him back into the ministry to which he was called. Now keep your finger in Acts 11 and turn over to the book of Galatians, uh, about four, maybe five books to your right. Chapter 2. And listen just for a moment to Paul's perspective on this whole idea of relationship, what it meant to him, what it did to him, and how important it is in the church. Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. I referred to this last week. I want you to hear it. 
Saul, in the middle of, of writing here, but we'll pick up in verse 9, he says, Recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. It wasn't going to be two churches, but there were two outreach methods. One was Saul, Paul, who would go to the Gentiles, and the other one is Peter and the apostles who would go to the Jews. Both ways that the gospel would go out. He gave us the right hand, or they gave us the right hand of fellowship. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Listen, what does Paul say is the mark of fellowship? What is the mark of the right hand of fellowship? Look at verse 9 again. The recognition of the grace that has been given. Translation. When I recognize God's grace has been given to a person, I automatically am, am called on to extend the right hand of fellowship. If God's grace is given to someone, it is now my responsibility to be in relationship with them. To extend fellowship to them, to say, I will walk with you, brother, sister, like Ananias laying his hands on Saul and calling him brother. In that same way, when grace is upon a person, I am called to extend the right hand of fellowship. Paul says, man, they they saw it in me, they saw his grace in me, and so they gave me fellowship. And I like that. By the way, where Paul writes the right hand of fellowship, the word hand is in the plural form. It's literally the right hands of fellowship. Well, how does that work? I only have one right hand. The right hands? Yeah, because it was Peter and James and John all three. Three right hands. The right hands. It's a collective calling on the church to extend our right hands to anybody that God has graced with His forgiveness, with His redemption. So full support. It's more than a high five. Right hand of fellowship, dude. On the back side. <laughs> you know. It's more than a handshake. Hey, welcome to church. Now, get out of my face. It's so beautiful. This right hand of fellowship is an endorsement of a person's faith. An endorsement of the grace that has been given them. And in Paul's case, it was an endorsement of his calling. The right hand of fellowship. It's more than who you watch the game with. It's more than who you go to lunch with. When we give fellowship one to another, when we encourage and extend relationship, we are giving our personal endorsement on God's endorsement on each other's lives. When I look at Les and I say, I will walk with Les as my brother. When I say, I will walk with Donna as my sister, what I'm saying is, I endorse them. Not that my endorsement means anything, But I am in agreement with the endorsement of God for the redemption that is on my brother and my sister. And so we walk together. The right hand of fellowship. Relationship. And that's exactly, by the way, what Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 says, Both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified are all from one. They're all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now that has confused some people. Wait, you're saying Jesus and all of us are all from the same God. So is Jesus created? No, that's not what the Hebrew writer was saying. He's saying Jesus put on flesh just like you wear flesh, just like I wear flesh. And why did Jesus do that? To extend the right hand of fellowship. To extend relationship from God to mankind. In becoming like us, He not only saves us and sanctifies us, but my friends, He endorses those who would believe in Him. Please get this. If we would be Christ-like, Christianos, if we would wear and glory in the name Christian, we must be endorsers of each other. We must extend relationship one to another. But sometimes things can go south. They can get sour. Verse 11 in Galatians chapter 2 Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Do you understand what's happening? The Judaizers, the Jewish people, come into town, and Peter, who was hanging out with the Gentiles, stops. (laughs) Cuts off fellowship because he's a little embarrassed, and because the Jewish guys were saying, wait, you're eating with Gentiles? And we're right back... To Cornelius and Caesarea, go ahead and baptize them, but don't fellowship with them. Go ahead and say you share the same church body or the same faith, but man, don't be in relationship with them. They're a little offensive. Or they're a little different. Or perhaps they've wronged you. Dang, Christianity is not a two-party system. Thank the Lord. There is no such thing in the Christian life as us and them. Only us. One body. One spirit. Just as you were always also called in one hope of your calling, Ephesians 4 and 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, we must extend fellowship one to another. Verse 13. The rest of the Jews, Paul said, joined Peter in hypocrisy. With the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, I love Paul, this guy's bold. If you being a Jew live like Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You're playing both sides, Peter. That's not right. That's not the way it works. Verse 15, he says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. And I know that Saul was being sarcastic there. We're Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even when we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since, listen to this, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. What is he saying? Get this, and we'll go back to Acts. There is no justification by religion. By the world's view of religion, translation, butts in seats will not secure hearts in heaven. Just because you sit in the seat on the Sunday morning does not mean you're going home. Christianos, we are called to active Christ-likeness, not to religious formalities. That's just hypocrisy. What are you getting at, Rick? Well, I've already said it. That the idea that we gather together, worship the Lord in fear and trembling, and yet take issue with a brother or a sister in our fellowship. And again, I'm not saying that's going on. I'm just saying. It's not okay. It's not okay. The fact that churches split and divide and fellowship is broken is not okay. Because that is not Christ-like. And if I'm going to call myself a Christian, it has absolutely nothing to do with where I'm sitting on a Sunday morning. It has everything to do with how I'm living every moment of my life. Christ-likeness. In the church, we do not have the luxury of rejecting people. If someone says, 1 John 4.20, I love God, and hates his brother... He's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I've said it this way before. You only love God as much as the person you love the least. (laughs) And every time I quote that, I hate it. Because that's tough. That forces me to think about the person in my life that I love the least. That I have the least affinity for. That I would just as soon not be around. And there are a few. Not here. But we're called, if we're going to be Christ-like, to extend the right hand of fellowship, at a minimum, to God's people, to all those who are called by Jesus. How can I sing to the Lord and scowl at a sister? How can I bring an offering to God and blacklist 
a brother? How can I commune with the body and cut off a hand or a foot? If you have a problem, and I'll just put this out to us all. If you have a problem with a brother or sister in this fellowship, or better yet, if you know a brother or a sister has a problem with you, Jesus commands you to deal with it. And He's not going to let you go on this one. He commands that we deal with it. He said in Matthew 5.23, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering. There at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. Now back to Antioch. What makes Antioch so unique in the early church is the amalgamation of people. The the acceptance that finally breaks beyond only the Jewish believers, and begins to go to Gentiles. We have Jews, we have Gentiles worshiping, walking, working together, loving each other, no boundaries, and that's the picture that we get. Relationship, Christ-likeness, Christianos, little Christ, all hanging out together, all in this together. And in fact, again, look at Acts chapter 13. There's a reason why we read that little intro that we're going to come to on Wednesday night. But you've got to note this, it's fascinating. There were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Now we'll talk about what that means, ministering to the Lord and fasting. We'll get there on Wednesday. But look at the little group. Five names are listed. Barnabas. A Middle Eastern Jew from Cyprus. Then you have Simon. Uh, Simon called Niger. Gang, most conservative Bible scholars believe, and there's great indication, that Simon called Niger is Simon of Cyrene. Remember that name? The guy who was in Jerusalem for Passover and was compelled to carry the cross of Jesus. Simon of Cyrene. We believe that this is the same Simon. But he's called Niger. What does Niger mean? Black. Simon from Cyrene. Cyrene was North Africa. Simon was an African. They're living in Antioch. So you've got a Middle Eastern Jew from Cyprus. You have an African man from Cyrene. He's up there. He's part of this leadership now in Antioch. You've got Lucius of Cyrene. Also Cyrene, North Africa. So Lucius is an African man. And then you have, and this is mind-boggling, Manaean. Manaean, who the Bible says was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch is the same Herod. There are a lot of Herods in the New Testament. Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas. He's the one who beheaded John the Baptist. When he was a little boy growing up in the court, oftentimes they would have boys raised together in, in the court, trained together, kind of in the, educated in the court. And in the court of Herod was a young man named Manaean, who is now a leader in the church in Antioch. That blows my mind. The word brought up with there, in the Greek is suntrophus, and it means a foster brother. Manaean very well may have been a foster brother, or at least a very close childhood friend of Herod Antipas. So one grows up to behead John the Baptist, the other one grows up to become a Christianos. And then you've got Saul, this highly trained rabbinical Jew. And you put these five men together and there's your first eldership in Antioch. There's your church leadership. There's your right hand of fellowship. The gospel brings people together. It's relationship, it's not religion. And how did Jesus then describe these Christianos? John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, Jesus made it very clear, our entire witness and testimony to the world depends on our relationships. Depends on our love. And when the world sees two Christians in combat, one with another, the world does not believe that we're followers of Jesus. See how important it is? That we inject perhaps a little fear, a little trembling, 
a little worshipful reverence to the Lord into our relationships and say, I cannot afford to take issue with a brother. Oh, maybe I can take issue, but not at a heart level. And we're not always going to agree on everything. Okay, I get that. We're not always going to see eye to eye, but we must always see heart to heart. We must always be looking for, if we have a rough road in a relationship with a Christian brother or sister, always looking for a way to reconcile. For you see, the Lord has called us to what He calls the ministry of reconciliation. So John one twenty or James one twenty seven indicates this in the caring of widows and orphans because you can't care for widows and orphans without relationship. Gives us a picture of of, of religion that is relationship based, that is one to another, that is caring for each other. But there's a second key that's equally important that James points out in James one twenty seven. He says, "And your pure undefiled religion is this." To keep oneself unstained by the world. Please, I'm begging you. As the Spirit has been begging me this week, inject some fear and trembling into the issue of remaining unstained by the world. Because the church in this generation, the church in this culture, looks so much like the world, people are having a hard time telling the difference. And James says, you want to have pure and undefiled worship? Remain unstained by the world. Look back in chapter 11. This is the second and final point. (laughs) The right hand of fellowship. And secondly, what I would call the resolution of the faithful. The resolution of the faithful. Barnabas comes into Antioch. What does he do? He witnesses the grace of God. He rejoiced and began to encourage them all with this. Listen. Encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Barnabas rejoiced. Barnabas tells them, resolve yourselves to remain with the Lord, the resolution of the faithful. Now check this out. These are brand new baby Christians. What does Barnabas tell them? Brand new to the faith. They don't even have the Jewish background now. These are Gentiles coming to faith by droves to the Lord. And Barnabas says, here's what i got to tell you. As he begins the discipleship process, even before the real teaching takes place, he says, remain resolved. Resolve to be remaining in the Lord. Resolve Literally, have a resolute heart. That phrase there where it says, he encouraged them all with resolute heart. Prothesis tecardius in the Greek. Prothesis tecardius. It's to purpose in the heart. Barnabas is telling them, purpose in your heart to stick to the Lord. Purpose in your heart to be like the Lord. To cling to, that word remain. Literally is to hold fast. To cling to. To abide in. Righteousness is the resolution of the faithful. Rick, you seem to be all bothered by this this morning. These are such common concepts in Christianity. Relationships and righteousness. So common that many Christians walk right by them and don't inject fear and trembling. Remember what I said earlier about Antioch's carnal indulgence. Antioch had a reputation for the flesh. Antioch was known around the Roman world. Now this is, this is Roman morality. And within the morality of the culture of Rome, Antioch was looked at by the culture as a highly carnally indulgent place. Why? Because Antioch was home to the Greek cult worship of Artemis and Apollo. Five miles outside of the city along the Orontes River was a place called Daphne. If you know your Greek mythology, Daphne was a river nymph. A naiad. 
Daphne who has a torrid love affair with the god, little g, mythological god Apollo. And so they're in the location called Daphne in a huge grove of laurel trees on a nightly basis. Temple prostitutes reenacted their torrid love affair with any paying customers who would come there. And the men of Antioch flooded down that five-mile path to Daphne constantly. And it was encouraged in the city. And the sexual immorality and the carnality was intense there in Antioch. (laughs) But today, who needs the sight of Daphne when you've got the internet? And by the way, and I am talking especially to my bros, there's no difference between the two. I would never trail off down the path to Daphne and go lie with a temple prostitute and reenact Apollo and Daphne. Well, I would never do something like that. Click. And Jesus put it this way. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's already a done deed. Guys, if you are sneaking off to Daphne.com, it's time to stop. It's just time to stop. I've tried. You're not trying hard enough. It's time to confess. Time to get two or three other brothers if you need to. Or your wife to bring her into it and say, I have a problem with this. I need help dealing with this. I need accountability for this. And there are all kinds of Christian accountability sites on the web that can keep you from going to those places. You just don't want to stop. Or you would. It's not fair, Rick. Listen. You have the power, Christian brothers, and I'm talking about pornography here, you have the power to stop right now. And it's in the Holy Spirit of the living God. If you have the Spirit indwelling you, you're telling me you don't have the power to stop tapping away? And running off to Apollo and Daphne? In the carnal, sexually charged culture of Antioch, Barnabas encouraged them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. No wonder they're called Christianos. Christ-like ones. Little Christ. They didn't look like the culture. They did not look like the world. They looked like Jesus. They did not look like Apollo or Daphne. I know some of our sisters are right now going, man, I'm really glad he went after the guys on pornography because... Gang. Righteousness is not a game with God. Righteousness costs Jesus every last drop of His blood. I hear about Christian sisters going off for a night out to bars. I don't get it. I don't understand that. I hear things, and I'm so thankful that I'm not told names. And anybody, anytime someone says, did you hear about it? I always go, I don't want to hear. I got off of Facebook. I stopped going to Facebook because I got so sick and tired of seeing what Christians are doing. And I'm not even talking about the Bridge Fellowship. I'm talking about friends of mine across the United States who have proclaimed Christ, who consider themselves to be Christians, and yet posting what movies they're seeing, what books they're reading, what things they're doing, what they love. And I sit there going, what is wrong with us? And then the Lord says, Rick? And I say, yes. <laughs> and He says, better test your own heart. And I struggle with this whole issue of righteousness. Righteousness. Barnabas comes to Antioch and says, Dudes, there is something so much better than Apollo and Daphne. Something so much better than the carnality that is offered to you in this city. And his name is Jesus. And if you will get into a relationship with him, guess how it's described. And it's not lost on me what Jim talked about at communion this morning. Ephesians 5.25 says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, described as a husband giving himself up for his wife. 
says, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He gave His blood for that, that we might be unstained, undefiled, Caught Jake on Friday night. I caught him. See, his wife's out of town. Wife and kids, and he's off on his own. Do you know what I caught him doing on Friday night? I'm going to tell you all, because he needs to confess it. (laughs) Sitting outside of five guys having the biggest time of his life. He's eating a burger and eating fries and we came walking up and there he is. And it was so funny to me because the look on his face was like, oh, busted. (laughs) If you know anything about Jake and Cam, Cam is very healthy. (laughs) I'm ragging on him. What are you doing when no one's looking? I love that our youth pastor was having a burger and that was the worst of his sin. (laughs) What are you doing? Are we living lives that are so unstained by the world that we look like Christ that people look at us and go, Christianos, Christian, you're one of them. Man, we love to come in here on a Sunday morning and sing, like a bride waiting for her groom will be a church ready for you. Will we? Are we? Yeah, he says. Which is why we need to have faith as a child. Will we be a church unstained? What bride would show up to her wedding in that beautiful white dress with stains all over it? And the church in this world, man, we've got to we've got to pursue righteousness. Amen. Got to stop playing these stupid fleshly games. That we all play in one way or another. Not a big deal. Doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's Jesus' blood that would make us holy and blameless. 1 Peter chapter 1, he said, As obedient children, verse 14, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And what religion does is it says... What do I need to do to get in? What laws must I keep to do what I want to do? Religion says, what are the rules to playing this game? And Jesus says, it's not a game. This is not a ritualistic thing. This is your life. This is what I died for. A right relationship, that is righteousness, says... Make me like Jesus. And it happened in Antioch. It happened in Antioch. The church just blew beyond the borders of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. It grew exponentially among one-time carnal Gentiles. And from this point forward, what you will see, chapter 13 all the way to chapter 28, is Paul primarily among Gentiles. Primarily going out into the Gentile world who didn't have this concept of religion that the Judaizers did. And it changes everything. And everywhere that Paul went, man, the right hand of fellowship was offered. Relationship in the church. Love each other. So that all the world will know you're my disciples, Jesus said. And he discipled people to be resolute in their faithful righteousness. Do not go back to the way you used to live. Don't live like the world. Don't look like the world. Why is it all so important? Because the world needs to see the people of God. The world needs to know, especially in these last days, there is a difference. And in Antioch, they were for the first time called Christians. And my prayer and my hope is that for the gospel, we may be called Christians. And as Peter said, we will glory in that name. Father, I pray that fear and trembling will enter our hearts as we come before you. 
And I ask, Lord, that we will not, we will not play the foolish religious game of saying, oh, it's not a big deal. Oh, it really doesn't matter. My heart cry this morning, Lord Jesus, is what matters to you will matter to us. What you love, we will love. Who you love, we will love. What you do, we will do. How you acted, how you behaved, how you lived, that's how we're going to act and behave and live, Lord. Because I truly believe, Father, if we would be Christians like they were in Antioch, we would see the walls blown out of this place. And Lord, You know it is not about numbers, but it is about hearts. So Father, help us to extend that right hand of fellowship. I pray over this fellowship now, if there's any contention, if there's any factious spirit, if there's any division, if there is any antagonism, a brother to a brother, a sister to a sister, in this fellowship, Lord, would You redeem and reconcile and restore? And I pray, Lord, as we go forward, that You will convict each and every one of us Not just sitting in here on a Sunday or a Wednesday or a Friday or a Tuesday or whatever day we're in here. You will convict every one of us as we live our lives to live for Jesus as Christians. In Jesus' name, Amen.